0: Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Combating Compaction with No-Till and Cover Crops, is brought to you by Midwest Biotech. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Midwest Biotech for sponsoring today's episode. Midwest Biotech markets the complete line of Chandler crop products that enhance plant growth and soil health. To improve soil health, farmers need reliable and easy to understand measurements of soil biology, chemistry, and structure. Midwest Biotech recently opened their new soil health lab to provide practical information based on quick and affordable methods, including the Solvita suite of soil health tests. Contact Midwest Biotech to learn how you can manage carbon, nitrogen, and other important resources that contribute to soil health and your bottom line. Visit them at MidwestBioMan.com. With the wet weather much of the country saw in the fall of 2018 and spring of 2019, many farmers have found themselves having to get into their fields when conditions were less than ideal. Heavy combines, grain carts, tractors, and tanks of manure have the potential to damage fields, creating soil compaction and deep ruts. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we hear from NRCS soil health specialist, Jim Horman, who explains how improving soil structure with no-till and cover crops can help alleviate compaction problems. He also shares his favorite cover crops for fighting soil compaction and explains why you should never go into a buckwheat field at four o'clock in the afternoon.
1: Today we're gonna talk about improving soil structure, reducing compaction naturally with no-till. I like to call it the uh, biology of uh, soil compaction. A lot of what we call soil compaction is actually poor soil structure. And probably the difference between soil compaction and poor soil structure is when you compact the soil, you can compact it with weight, but there's also a natural way that that soil with poor soil structure. And that's what we're gonna talk about today is how you can degrade your soil. And part of that has to do with the fact that you're not putting enough organic matter back into the soil. So that's what we're gonna try to talk to a little bit. We'll we'll try to get into that. So here's the ideal soil uh, composition. Uh, If you look at a a soil, it's about 45% mineral. 50% 50% of it is actually pore space. So that 50% pore space ideally would maybe be about half water and half air. We can actually have more pore space in a soil, more than 60%, right around 55, 60, close to 60%. But where we're getting into compacted areas, we've actually lose a lot of our pore space. And some of our soils, uh, ideally we'd like to have 50% pore space. We only have probably around 30 to 35. Does that uh, impact agriculture? It absolutely does, because if you have a compacted soil, you have less room for air and water. And in a dry year, that's really gonna cause uh, a major problem. But probably the most important part of that soil is that organic matter. And in an ideal soil, uh, original soils probably had five to six percent organic matter. Now it depends on whether you have sand. For sandy soils, a good good amount of organic matter is probably two two and a half to to three percent. If you can get it above that, boy, you're really doing good. Uh, this organic matter is a little bit like your brain and your heart. It controls so many things. What do we say about organic matter? The more organic matter you have in the soil, the more it it buffers everything. It buffers temperature, it buffers water, it buffers CEC, it buffers your pH. So if you don't have organic matter in your soil, uh, it's real important. And I brought these bricks just to show you what it does in the soil. Notice what happens if I have some organic matter in, in between, that's a lot like this sponge. And this brick is made out of clay. If I compress this, notice that I can come right back again. And that's what the organic matter does in the soil. Now, if you get rid of the organic matter, pretty soon this brick comes and there's nothing to, to do it. And this is what we call basically a lot of poor soil structure. This is some of our compaction. What's this brick made out of? made out of clay, how do we make this brick? We put it in a furnace, we burned off the organic matter, and we dried it out. What do farmers do when they till the soil? They take uh, soil, they turn it over, bring it to the surface, the sun beats on it, burns off the organic matter, it gets hard, right? So what do we call brick laying on top of the soil? Yeah, brick laying on top of the soil is basically a clod. And here's what happens. When you burn off that organic matter, this clay has a negative charge and we put positive ions in between there and it's gonna set up like a brick wall, okay? That's what happens. Have you ever seen a farmer uh, go and till their soil and get it really just as fine as you can get it? And then what happens when it rains? Sets so up just like a concrete, doesn't it? And that's exactly what we're doing when we till the soil. We get it way too fine. We call these individual particles macroaggregates. And what we're trying to do is form a macro aggregate. So macro aggregates are from the roots and from all the microbes. That's what we're doing is we're gonna form something that's about the size of a small piece of sand or gravel. And that's when, if I if I had a chance, I'd bring some grass in here and I could dangle it in front of you. And you would see on there these little peds, and that's how mother nature actually forms. So if all you guys have a lot of clay in your soil, you can actually form a macro aggregate. You can actually get the equivalent of sand and gravel by forming these macro aggregates. So here's typically what we see. I see this everywhere. I've been to Kansas, I've been to Minnesota. Uh, Randall was with us one time, we were in Minnesota and they had the most beautiful soil I've ever seen. It's black all the way through. They were complaining they were only getting 125 to 145 to 150 bushel corn. It'd get dry out and their corn couldn't do anything. We went and looked and we dug a soil pit and their corn went down and it went off at a right hand angle. Why did it do that? Reason being is because they plowed that soil every single year, whether it was corn or soybeans. We went to another farm and the guy was using no-till and he had roots down there four to five feet deep. He was getting really good yields. The goal is now to use the roots, cover that soil, that's a natural system, add that organic matter. And by adding that organic matter, we can make that soil so it will come back. And as we add those roots and we add those uh, the glomulin from the, the mycorrhizae, and we add all the microbial waste, we can actually form something that's very similar to sand and gravel. Okay, it's big enough to let air and water down there, even if we have clay. Okay, what's the difference between sand, silt, and clay? Particle size. Sand will eventually become silt, give it enough time, and then that silt turns into clay. But the clay, the reason the clay is, it's got these negative charges. You put a positive ion in there, it's gonna set up like concrete. You start adding some of this other organic matter and all these root exudates, then you can actually form uh, what we call a macro aggregate. And that's what we're trying to get to is have good soil structure with macro aggregate. So organic matter has less density, so it can hold more air and water. Every pound of soil organic matter can hold 18 to 20 pounds of water. It can hold about uh, one to two inches of, of uh, water per acre. So it acts like a sponge. Compacted soil is set up just like a road, uh, a road or pavement. And, and the worst part about it is, I saw this in the drought of 2012. We got a one inch rain. My neighbor uses conventional tillage. I have no till and cover crops. And we got a one inch rain. You know, you need every drop of that water, but it rained so hard that about two thirds to three fourths of it ran off, ran right onto my field and was instantly soaked up. And the guy had, he had corn, I had corn. Later on in the year, his corn was just completely fired, had very low yields. I had tremendously good yields. It's one of the best years I ever had. Uh, with my, even though we didn't get very much rain that year. And, and the prices were what? That was a very profitable year because corn was seven bucks, 750, and we got really good yields that year. I mean, they were down a little bit, but still it was a pretty good year uh, compared to other ones. How many bushels can you get from every one inch of water in the soil? What do we average? Somewhere between eight to nine bushels of corn for every one inch of water. that
0: Thanks for listening to the No-Till Farmer Podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by the no-till authorities featured in this series, then join us in St. Louis from January 7th to the 10th for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. Behind the theme, Banking More Dollars with No-Till, we've lined up more than 30 top-notch no-tillers, agronomists, researchers, and other no-till experts to deliver innovative ideas that can help you get the most out of your no-till farming system share ideas and get solutions to your toughest no-till challenges during 13 thought-provoking general sessions, 23 expert-led no-till classrooms, 76 farmer-to-farmer roundtable discussions, and two exclusive workshops on soil biology and raising hemp as a specialty crop.
1: Here's what's so important about this, Uh, every one percent organic matter, this was done back in 1994, you look at a sand If you add 1% organic matter to that soil, it's gonna hold about one acre inch of water. A silt loam, 1.9. silty clay loam, uh, 1.4. If you add more and more organic matter, yes, those numbers go down. But if at 5% organic matter, that sands now down to a half of an acre inch of water, but you're holding about 2.5 acre inches of water per per foot of soil. So if I can add more organic matter to uh, another uh, foot down and then another foot down on average, you know, I'm looking at quite a bit of water in that soil profile that is available, but you got to be able to get to it. If I have that plow layer there and those roots hit that and then have to go off at a right-hand angle, yes, some of them will get down, but what we want to see is a root system that goes like this and not have just one or two. And that has a big impact on, on yield, especially in dry areas or when we have dry dry situations. No-till, does it actually get better or worse? That residue has a function, it's very important. First of all, it keeps the soil so that you get water, slows that water down so the water can get in. But what else does residue do on top of the surface of the soil? It helps with rain splash, but remember these macro aggregates that I was talking about? What happens is uh, it allows the water to get uh, into the soil. These macro aggregates allows that water. These are impermeable to water. So they actually help to trap water inside, but then the water will go go off. And, it, and we always talk about getting too much oxygen in the soil. If you put, if you uh, till a soil, how many of you guys have a wood burning stove or you've seen a wood burning stove? What happens when you open the damper on a wood burning stove? It burns hotter, right? And the same thing happens in soil. When you open a soil up, you get too much oxygen in. Uh, you break it open. Now the thing about it is, with this residue, we can allow oxygen to get in because it ha- and uh, water, but because it has this uh, glomulin and uh, these uh, sugars around it, it keeps that macroaggregate from splitting open. Once we do the tillage. The tillage breaks this macro aggregate open, you lose all the carbon and it goes up into the atmosphere. So that residue plays a very important role, one for water and two for regulating the amount of oxygen. It actually, too much oxygen is not a good thing. Too much oxygen in the soil actually will cause uh, a few problems, uh, will, will get too much uh, microbial activity. And they use this glomulin, they use these polysaccharides as a food source, has two properties. One, to feed the microbes. Number two, to form macro aggregates. So we wanna control how much oxygen we get in the soil. Here's what we saw at uh, Wooster. We had a conventional tilled field. We had a no-till field. We had 1,500 inches over a 40-year time period. How many inches of water do you think came off the no-till field? Actually, about seven. Over a 40-year time period, they only had seven inches of water runoff. And most of that occurred within the first two years when that soil was was converting over to no-till. Once they got it converted over to no-till and they started to uh, improve that soil structure, they had uh, almost zero runoff off of those fields. So that's important again in, in water and uh, in, in water management. Here's something that I don't think a lot of people realize. This is related to the speed of water. The faster that water moves, the more nutrients it takes with it. What happens if I double the speed of water? How many more nutrients can I take? It's two to the sixth power, 64 times more. So if I go from one mile per hour to two mile per hour, I'm up to 64 times more nutrients. Two to four, 128, four to eight, 256. At, uh, you know, 16 to 32 mile per hour, I have a thousand times more nutrients. What happens with our road? What happens with our ditches? At least in Ohio, and I know it happens in other areas. We have such poor soil structure that the water comes off very quickly, and our ditches go from here, come up like this. That water's racing along, and we've measured it. It's somewhere between 16 to 30 mile per hour. Think about how many nutrients. When I look at the ditches anymore, they're running black. I mean, they have a ton of nutrients that are being lost. And what's it taking? It's taking the sediment, which is your organic matter because it floats and that's the richest part of your field that you're losing. That's the part uh, about no-till that's very important because it allows that water to get into the, and so it's gonna drop its load. Uh, If there is water moving, it goes down, we don't have to worry about it. Here's what happens with conventional tillage. We got this dark water there uh, with the eco farming. That's no-till with the cover crop. What happens is the water comes in, it's slower, it takes a lot longer, it'll come up gradually, and then it goes down and it'll last a little bit longer. Here's the eco farming, no-till and a cover crop. You have the same volume of water. Notice where we do the conventional tillage. What happens is it all gets in the ditch very quickly. We get a great big hydrograph where it comes up, and then it goes down very quickly. Over here, it's more gradual and it's a slower. By doing it slower, we have uh, same volume of water, but we're going to have a lot less nutrients. They're going to be lost in in that one. Here's the impact of crops on frozen soil. I don't know if people will realize this or not, but if you have a cover crop out there, it honeycombs the soil. It is a live crop. It is warm. And what happens is the snow melts a little earlier and it melts slower. It takes a little while for it to melt. I mean, it'll it'll melt earlier, but it's a slow melt. So the water goes down much slower. Over here where we have a frozen soil, what happens if you don't have residue out there? It's not buffered, it will freeze deeper, it will freeze harder because it's denser. You took out the organic matter. Air is a great insulator. So if you have soil organic matter, you'll be able to insulate that soil and it won't be quite as as tough. Where does most of the water uptake? 70% is within that top foot. That's why we can grow corn on a compacted soil. Okay, we may only have nine inches of soil, but we can generally grow a, a decent crop. However, over time, Uh, What happens if it gets very dry out, wouldn't you like to be able to get an additional 30% or 40% more water? And that's where if you can get those roots to go down through that soil, you can open it up. And I like to say it's a little bit like a a drill. If you've got a a big concrete or a a big heavy uh, log or something rather, what do you do first? You put a small drill into it, you pre-drill it. That's what the cover crop roots do. They're going to find those area weaknesses. Then you follow that with a big root like a corn root or soybean root and then they'll expand it out. And so that's what these roots do. The cover crop roots uh, help to do that. It's also very similar for the nutrient uptake. Most of our nutrients are right in the surface. We talk about stratification. Stratification is just normal. We find it everywhere. If you go to a woods, You go to a grassland, most of the residue is uh, posited on the surface, and that's where it's at. But if you have good soil structure, when it rains, what happens to the nutrients? They go down through the soil, the roots bring them up, bring them to the surface, they come back down, bring them up, and, and we've got this natural cycling going on. What has happened with agriculture? We broke that cycle because now we have this compacted layer there. We got this plow pan. Now we can't have, get those nutrients all the way down. And because of that, uh, we tend to have more runoff and, uh, causes more problems. So here now we're going to talk about compaction. Compaction can reduce your yields by 60%. Okay. And they can last for a long time. It's been shown to persist for up to nine years. Gradually it'll go away, but, but it takes some time. Next thing here. This is probably, if you can increase your aggregation and your aggregate stability, you need to promote that biological activity. And you can do that by increasing your organic matter and using no-till. I like to call that ecological farming. Why do I call it that? Because it very closely mimics what mother nature does. If we follow mother nature's, what she does, we're gonna probably have solve a lot of our problems. To prevent soil compaction, you gotta stay off the wet soils and you gotta control, manage that traffic. Key point here is 80% of your soil compaction is from uh, wheel traffic that occurs on the very first pass. So if you do tillage, and then you run over it, 80% of that compaction is gonna happen the very first time you run over it. Here's a tire rut, and this is a typical uh, example of uh, what happens. You'll see this little bit of a rise, goes down, little bit of a rise, and it comes out. So what happens? As you're pushing down, the soil goes down, but there's already soil beneath it, so it pushes out. Well, there's already soil there, so you get this little rise. Goes up like this, comes like that, goes over. That is a typical what we see. If I go and dis that and shut that apart, have you ever dissed a rut? Looks like you lost soil, doesn't it? Well, what, what are you losing? You're losing your pore space because you compacted it like a an accordion, you brought it all together and now you're losing your pore space. So you're gonna have less room for air and water. And do roots compact the soil? Absolutely, because they have mass uh, and they have uh, you know volume to them. Uh, basically, if you take this radish, it takes up space and it pushes down, it pushes out. And it physically lifts the soil however it compacts it with a purpose because by bringing those soil particles together now when these root exudates come they're going to form this macro aggregate. So what's going to happen is all those polysaccharides and uh, some of the glomulin from this mycorrhiza are going to come together to form macro aggregates. So we can actually uncompact the soil by using these these radish. Here's what we're trying to do there on the right side is what we call a macro aggregate. It's composed of all these micro aggregates, these single particles. We combine them together to form a macro aggregate. The thing about a macro aggregate is they're very soft and they can very easily be broken open. That's where most, a lot of water, a lot of carbon is stored inside there. So when you do tillage, what you do is you break open those macro aggregates, you form micro aggregates, what happens when we form uh, micro aggregates? We get the brick wall. Our goal is, is to keep these big macro aggregates out there because that will allow air and water to get into the soil. Okay? And so that's made up of a lot of different components there. These mycorrhizal fungus are very important. They bring back tremendous amount of nutrients. How many mycorrhizae are there in a corn? Anybody have any idea? there's at least 21 to 22 that can be infecting your corn at any one time. Okay, and what do they do? Well, I, I, I happen to go to a really good uh, research uh, on this and it was very interesting. Some of the best mycorrhizae will bring back 140 to over 210% more water back to that corn plant. And what they do is they go through the soil. They're one-tenth the size of a root hair. Matter of fact, our plants would not be here If it wasn't for mycorrhizae, mycorrhizae were here first and they kind of evolved together. The mycorrhizae, this is over a 400 million year uh, evolution and 80% of our plants, 80, 85% of them have mycorrhizae and they do much better with the mycorrhizae because they've decided to farm that out. They feed these mycorrhizae, they give anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of their total carbohydrate reserves to feed these mycorrhizae. They're like freight trains, they bring back nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, each one might have a different purpose. One might bring back nitrogen, one might bring back phosphorus, and they take all these corn plants and they can actually link these corn plants together. They did a little study up in Michigan, they had a 40 acre woods. 30 acres of that woods was one single mycorrhizae, and it connected every single tree in that woods together. Gives you a little different thought on what's going on, and they were sharing nutrients back and forth. How long did that mycorrhizae live? They estimated it was over 10,000 years old. Because the thing about a mycorrhizae, it doesn't have a head. All it does is it just, it just spreads out, And if one of it breaks off, and when it breaks off, what does it do? It gives off this glomulin, and that glomulin is the sticky substance that helps to form these macroaggregates. It's it's one component. We also have the root exudates. you also have the microbial waste, but if you have a healthy soil, you're gonna have a lot of mycorrhizae there. What are some good things that will promote mycorrhizae? Oats is probably one of the best ones. Some of our crops are a little better than others. Corn is highly dependent on it. Uh, Soybeans is also pretty uh, highly dependent on it. But if you do too much tillage and you way, way over fertilize, you'll have a lot less because these mycorrhizal nets, when you do tillage, it's about like cutting off my arms and legs. I can't move around very good and I can't do a whole lot. So that's the key.
0: We'll come back to Jim's talk in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor Midwest Biotech for supporting today's episode. Midwest Biotech markets the complete line of Chandler crop products that enhance plant growth and soil health. To improve soil health, farmers need reliable and easy to understand measurements of soil biology, chemistry, and structure. Midwest Biotech recently opened their new soil health lab to provide practical information based on quick and affordable methods, including the Solvita suite of soil health tests. Contact Midwest Biotech to learn how you can manage carbon, nitrogen, and other important resources that contribute to soil health and your bottom line. Visit them at MidwestBioMan.com. Now let's get back to Jim Horman.
1: Building soil is like building a house. Building good soil structure is like building a house. The architect is Mother Nature. I'm building a house. I start off with what? The parent material, the sand, silt and clay. So if you look at a room like this, or any kind of house, say a brick house, you've got your foundation and that's what you, know, you start to build with. But in, inside of here, look, we got all this pore space. How do we get this pore space? It's because we have uh, braces. We have the, uh, uh, what do you want to call it? The wood, and that wood has structure. Now, if you look at carbon, carbon's a little like spaghetti. So in order to give it structure, how do we do? How do we make it stronger? How do we make iron stronger? We add sulfur, we add nitrogen, we put some double and triple bonds in there and it gets really hard. So that's what's given us the wood structure so that we can have this pore space so you and I can talk and and uh, breathe. And then we have the braces, the nitrogen and the sulfur. And then if you look at uh, a typical, Uh, house, you've got the brick on the outside, you got the wood on the inside, and then you got some lag screws or something to tie that together. That's what the phosphorus does and the humus. That humus has been around for a long, long period of time. It's tough as nails, so it's also tying. A lot of this, uh, what we're talking about is two types of organic matter in the soil. We got the active organic matter which is trying to convert to humus over a long period of time. It's not as strong And then we've got the humus, which is very hard. It's been around for a long time. It's been tested, okay? Then we've got this glomulin and this house wrap. So what that does is that wraps that macro aggregate and protects it so that it doesn't lose the carbon. And then we got the roof, which is all that surface residue. Now I have a question for you. If we have a tornado come through every other year, we call this tillage, and it takes off my roof, what's gonna happen to my house? If I don't get the roof put on there, it's gonna to start to rain and pretty soon the wood's gonna rot out. And what's gonna to happen to the house? It's gonna compact just like that accordion. Now it's not water in the soil that's causing the problem. What is the problem? We already alluded to this early. Too much oxygen in the soil makes the microbes go nuts. When the microbes go way up, what do they eat? They eat all the glomulin and that active carbon in the soil then pretty soon our house gets really unstable and it starts to collapse and so our soils get uh, basically lose their structure that's the key thing all right let's talk about this carbon dioxide carbon dioxide's heavier than oxygen we should try to keep the carbon dioxide in the soil too much oxygen there's a relationship that goes like this as carbon dioxide goes down oxygen goes up Okay, and what we want to do is too much oxygen in the soil causes that carbon dioxide to be lost from the atmosphere. So roots act like a biological valve to control that and the residue on the surface. That's why you need to have that residue. A lot of people say, I want to get rid of that residue. I want to break it down. Actually, you need to have a nice layer of residue to, to help that soil. And here's the key point. When we oxidize it, here's what happened. We put a lot of oxygen into that soil. This macro aggregate breaks open, it's disrupted. It turns into microaggregates, And what does it release? As the oxygen comes in, the carbon dioxide goes, we start to lose all of our uh, carbon from the soil. And here's the thing, a lot of people will tell me this. Well, Jim, you just don't understand. My soils are cold and wet and yet I have long-term no-tillers that tell me their soils are warm and moist. Which one's right? Well, they're actually both right. Okay, so let's take a look at this. When I convert from conventional tillage to no-till, did I get rid of all my soil compaction? No, so what happens? Last year, I think we had an extremely cold winter, and so as you come out of the cold winter, Water holds the heat, but it also holds the cold. It takes 10 times more energy to warm up water than what it does air. So if I have a soil that's compacted and it's saturated with water, has a lot of water in there, if I can't get that water to drain, it's gonna be cold and wet. As I use a cover crop and break that up so that I can get that water to drain, it's gonna warm up. Now let's go over a couple years. And now as I'm starting to get more residue on the surface, And the residue breaks down what color does residue when it breaks down turns black does black soil absorb energy and 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 warm up faster or does it get colder it warms up right well then let's go out another couple years and now i start to get a thick layer of residue on there it's actually pretty tough to do that because if you really got a healthy soil it's breaking it down as fast as what it's doing it so but what's the what's the thing going on here if you've got live roots That soil is going to be warmer. You've got a lot of microbial activity. I just have one question for you. What happens in the middle of a compost pile? It warms up, right? So if you have a very active soil, warm and moist. If you're telling me that your soils are cold and wet, I know that you have compaction. I don't even have to look at it because I can go there. That tells me that you've got a a soil structure problem. That's the key thing. It can take a few years to get this soil straightened out. If we were starting with virgin soil, we would not be complaining about cold, wet soils because it has good structure. That's the key thing. Why do our soils compact? Well, look at your crop rotation. I do not like drilled soybeans. Uh, I have a bias against them, I'll just admit it. The reason being is when you plant them soybeans so thick like that, they have a very weak root system and they go down and they go off at a right-hand angle when they hit a compacted layer. They just do not have any energy. I would rather see them in 15 inch rows. Some guys are even doing 30 because I want them to have a a stalk that is as thick as my thumb and I want them roots to go out wide and to be stronger and that will help to break up uh, soil compaction. Put a cover crop in front of that, cereal rye in front of that, and you can really help it out. And here's the real question. What percentage of the time do we have live roots in the soil? If you're in a corn-soybean rotation about one-third of the time, four months out of the year, by adding that cover crop, you've got roots in there 12 months of the year. They're going to be forming uh, all these, giving off all these carbon, all this active carbon and the root exodus. You've got a, a factory that's gonna, how long does this glomulin, how long does this active carbon last in the soil? It can last a week, three weeks, probably three to four months. And if we're going six to seven months, what's happening to our soil? The microbes through the winter uh, are eating up this glomulin, eating up this active carbon, and our soils then they are bas- they're basically starving. So their populations, when you do tillage, you break it open. And I like to say they feast for a week, And then they starve for the next three to four months. And as they release those nutrients, what happens? We get towards the end of the winter. All those nutrients are released. We get some heavy rains. What happens to your nutrients? Either flow off or flow down and we lose a lot of them. If we keep a live crop out there, we can recycle those nutrients, keep them going. Does no-till have more live roots than conventional tillage? If you're in a corn-soybean rotation and you're not growing a cover crop, no, they don't. It's not until you add the cover crop, you mimic mother nature. Mother nature never has a void. Matter of fact, have any of you guys ever seen those little um, shows where they say, what happens if humans go away? What happens to our roads? What happens to our cities? They start to be covered with live plants and pretty soon they're all broken up. And yet we go out there and we try to form a road because we're doing all this tillage. Okay, and then we don't let anything grow and our soils get hard and dense. If we just let it go back, if you keep something growing there, your soil should be a lot looser. Uh, conventional tillage with subsoiling, corn yield gains of one to three bushel, 3%, soybean yield gains two to five bushel, 10%. However, once you're in a no-till system, what happens? Now, if you no-till it, you start to break up that structure, we can actually see a one to three bushel loss uh, in corn, two to five bushel loss in soybeans. So it actually goes the other way. Okay. Once you get that soil established. Now, how can I help this even more is if I add a cover crop. This is just no till by itself. Here's, uh, subsoiling versus cover crops. This is, uh, a subsoiler. What can it can, do, uh, what can it do? Immediate changes in soil structure. You can go 18 inches deep. You can increase, uh, infiltration till you run over it again. Uh, and it leaves the soil susceptible again to compaction. What do the cover crops do? Slow change in soil structure might take you a couple years, uh, but we're gonna go deeper, three feet deep. Uh, it's gonna increase uh, infiltration because you got that residue on there. You're gonna get more water storage. It will protect the soil from erosion. You're gonna add nutrients. And organic matter, you're going to keep the nutrients in there, keep them recycling. It fits into a continuous no-till system very well. And it's going to help then protect you against uh, soil compaction. Why is it protecting you? One quick question. If it's raining, pouring down rain out, getting ready to pour down rain out, and you got a bare soil that's not that's been freshly tilled, would you rather run across with your tractor or with a, a truck across a bare field that's been freshly tilled, or would you rather run across a, a pasture to get back home? You know, if it's starting to pour buckets, what's gonna happen if you're in that freshly tilled? You're gonna compact it, you're gonna spin out, but you've got some structure there. If you go across that pasture and run across it, generally, if you don't have too much weight on there, that soil will compact, uh, it'll, it'll compress, and then it'll come right back again. Usually you don't see nearly as much damage there as as what you do where you ran across the other soil. Here's all the soil resistance to compaction. These are ranked. Subsoiling it, deep ripping, and full subsurface tillage is probably the worst. Then moldboard, chisel plowing. Uh, Then just subsoiling with the wide shanks. We start to get some improvement when we strip till. Uh, if we do just shallow tillage with an airway or Phoenix Harrow, that's not as bad. Then we get into the intermittent no-till. If we no-till you know, one or two years, then we're going to till it up. You still will const- keep a lot of your structure, but you really do hurt it. Matter of fact, uh, Don Rogowski says the first tillage pass that you make over a field, you lose, uh, he thinks you lose about 75, 80% uh, of your benefits you lose a tremendous amount of carbon just with that first tillage pass within 10 minutes. You can't see it, you can't smell the carbon, that carbon dioxide that goes right up into the atmosphere. The best ones are no-till. If you've got light residue or bare ground, continuous no-till then with heavy residue, no cover crop, continuous no-till with a growing cover crop, and then the, the ultimate is continuous no-till, controlled traffic, and a cover crop. That's gonna resist it. What you're gonna do is you're gonna compact a small area. The rest of it's gonna be like your garden and that will allow uh, the crops to grow uh, much better. These are the best cover crops to fight soil compaction. Uh, Grasses have much uh, better fibrous root systems. So sorghum sedan, uh, annual ryegrass and cereal rye. Real quick on sorghum sedan. I like to put it out after wheat, either mow it or feed it. I'm after the roots. When you mow it, after it gets three feet tall, you'll get five to nine times more roots. And then you can let it grow out and then plant uh, soybeans I would recommend after because you've got a lot of carbon there. You can add uh, about a half a percent of organic matter. Now, when I say you're adding a half a percent of organic matter, is that gonna stay there? The answer is no, because this is active organic matter. It's always breaking down. So it'll last maybe, one or two, three years until it breaks down. So you, what you have to do is keep supplementing that, put more cover crops out there, but you will see an, a, a pretty dramatic improvement in your soil if you do that. Brassicas are really good, uh, the, the radish, uh, the turnips have a little bit uh, shallower roots, but when you see an, uh, a radish out there, a daikon radish, about half the volume is in that root. The other half, what you don't see is all those little fine roots that come off when you pull it out of the ground. So they're uh, only about half the volume uh, in that radish is, is uh, in that tuber. The rest of it is all the little fine roots that are helping to break up your soil. The legumes, hairy vetch, cowpeas, red clover, winter peas, probably one of my favorites that I'm working with right now is sweet clover. Sweet clover will work on very poorly drained soils and it has a very deep tap root. You can get a lot of nitrogen out of it, 100 to 200 pounds uh, out of that. Uh, for surface compaction, buckwheat is a little bit better than phacelia. That's just, there are only a couple, inches deep. And then for deep compaction, we're looking at the sunflowers. Uh, they, they also help. Buckwheat will release more phosphorus probably than any other cover crop we have. it, it is uh, uh, It has some enzymes in it. And if you have extremely low phosphorus levels, grow buckwheat because it just really makes... And what's the best part about buckwheat are the flowers. Yeah, it's got a lot of flowers in it, but there's one thing you do not want to do with buckwheat. Don't ever go in a buckwheat field at 4 p.m. Why not? At 4 p.m., the bees get pissed off, and if you're out there, you're gonna get buzzed, okay? There are so many bees and so many beneficial insects out there. Uh, they really promote, and we're, we're promoting buckwheat around orchards, uh, around vegetable crops, wherever. If you have an insect problem, plant some buckwheat around it, and they really, really help with that.
0: Thanks to Jim Horman for that insightful presentation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Midwest Biotech, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at Notell Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.